The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we have been indeed going through the book of Acts passage by passage. And this morning, the passage we come to that comes next is uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 35. You know, we live in a very fractured society. You don't have to be an astute cultural observer to see and feel the various kinds of tensions that exist in our society today. Political tensions, uh, moral tensions, and of course, racial tensions. And to be candid with you, I, I kind of have to scratch my head a little bit at that last one because it's now been more than 150 years since the Emancipation Proclamation and over 50 years since the Civil Rights Movement. And yet, racial tensions still seem just as high today as they've ever been. It's a certainly a very troubling and rather painful reminder that we live in a fallen, broken world. And I don't believe our society has any idea, at least not any idea that shows promise about how to fix what's broken. You know, as I was uh, dri- driving to church this morning, we saw a deer that was limping along. It looked like it had a a broken leg. And that's kind of how I picture our society right now. We have no ability. Something is broken. And just like that deer, we have no ability to fix what's broken. Yet that's not to say there aren't any answers because there are. If we'll look in the right place. And I'm convinced that the place for us to look is the Bible. It turns out that the Bible has a lot to say about racial tensions, as we're going to see this morning in Acts 10. The main idea of this passage is that God shows no partiality. And that comes straight from the lips of Peter in verse 34. God shows no partiality. So that's where this passage is headed. But let's see how it gets there. And to do that, we actually have to go way back to Acts 1.8. That's the key verse that outlines the progression of the entire book of Acts. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's exactly What happens, as we've already seen during these first nine chapters of Acts? In chapters one through five, we saw the gospel being spread around Jerusalem. And then in Acts six through nine, we saw it being spread around Judea and even Samaria. And and by the way, for it to be spread around Samaria was a, a pretty big deal because it's well documented how deeply the Jews despised the Samaritans. So it took a lot for the church of Jerusalem to accept those new Samaritan converts as genuine Christians and as true brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
We saw in chapter eight how the Lord very wisely brought that about by delaying the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, by, by delaying giving that gift to the Samaritans until the apostles Peter and John arrived on the scene and were able to witness for themselves the Holy Spirit coming upon those new Samaritan converts. However, there was still one enormous ethnic barrier that remained. The barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Now, in case you're not aware, the term Gentiles simply refers to people who aren't Jews. In contrast to the Samaritans who were half Jewish, the Gentiles weren't Jewish at all. And this barrier between Jew and Gentile was even more pronounced and formidable than the barrier between Jew and Samaritan. Yet here in Acts 10, that barrier is finally going to be broken down. And for the first time, the gospel is going to spread, in the words of Acts 1-8, to the ends of the earth. And that would be nothing short of a revolutionary. The whole idea of God's saving blessings being offered to the Gentiles would have been revolutionary, even scandalous to the Jewish mind. It would require that deeply ingrained racial prejudice be overcome. And that's exactly what we're going to see unfold here in Acts 10. Let's look first at verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius was a centurion in the Roman army, meaning that he had a hundred soldiers under his command. He was also a Gentile, but is described in verse two as a devout man who feared God. Now, in the New Testament, for someone to be described as one who fears God, or sometimes phrased a God-fearer, that is a technical term that refers to a Gentile who had heard about the God of Israel and who was devoted to that God, but who hadn't yet taken the ultimate step of, of uh, circumcision in order to fully convert to Judaism. Yet God-fearers had at least forsaken their idol worship and had, were worshipers of Yahweh. The text also says that Cornelius gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And because of that, because he followed and accepted what revelation about God he did have, God blessed him with more revelation and sent to him a missionary. Now, of course, God could have just used that angel who appeared to Cornelius in the passage to share the gospel with Cornelius directly. But as we've already seen in Acts, 
That's not the way God's chosen to work. He's chosen to use human instruments to accomplish his purpose of taking the message of Jesus to the world. And that is exactly what Cornelius so desperately needed. You see, it wasn't enough that Cornelius feared God and gave money to charity and prayed continuously. None of that could save him from his sin or make him right with God. Cornelius needed Jesus because only Jesus can bridge that gap between sinful humans and a holy God. As we've already seen in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given uh, under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone. But let's continue on in our main passage by looking at verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they, that is the uh, messengers of Cornelius, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, I'm sure that after reading this passage, some of you are probably very excited that you have finally found biblical grounds and even a direct biblical command to eat meat, right? In verse 13, God clearly tells Peter to kill and eat. So that means we don't have to mess around with any of these fake meat products being marketed nowadays. We can go home this afternoon and sink our teeth into a nice, juicy steak without feeling any guilt. So praise God for that, I say. But of course, that's not really the main point of these verses. In order to fully understand the significance of what's going on here, you have to understand Jewish food laws. In the Old Testament, God told his people that certain foods were clean while other foods were unclean. So the Israelites were allowed to eat certain foods while other foods were off limits. And according to Leviticus 20:24, the reason for those dietary restrictions was to keep the Israelites separate from the idolatrous nations around them. Uh, the idea was that imposing these dietary restrictions would hinder social interaction with the Gentiles and thereby help the Israelites to stay religiously pure. Yet now, of course, with the mission Jesus laid out for his disciples, social interaction with Gentiles is quite desirable, even necessary. As a result, God's essentially telling Peter in these verses that the Old Testament dietary restrictions no longer apply. God gives Peter a 
vision of a mixture of clean and unclean animals and tells him to kill and eat. And that must have been a radical thought for Peter. As we're about to see in verse 17, Peter was greatly perplexed about this vision. And understandably so. I mean, just imagine that you're Peter and that God's directive for your life has always been to only eat kosher foods. Yet now, all of a sudden, God's saying that it's okay to eat foods that were formerly unclean. I mean, for us today, maybe it'd be like you or I walking into Target and God, we, us having a vision in which God says to us, you see that candy bar over there? I want you to steal that. <laughs> like, even though you've been told your entire life that stealing is wrong, and, and even though it's in the scriptures you now have that stealing is wrong, I want you to steal that candy bar. I imagine that's kind of like what it must have felt like for Peter with, with God telling him this, like to, to suddenly be informed that he's not bound by the Old Testament law any longer must have been a radical thought indeed. And as we continue on in this passage, we're going to see that God wasn't just telling Peter it was okay to eat unclean foods. He was actually preparing Peter to accept people who were formerly regarded as unclean. Look at verses 17 through 23. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men, right, Gentiles, who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in. That is, Peter invited them in to be his guests. So already with that last sentence, we can see the wall between Jew and Gentile showing a few cracks. Because typically a Jew wouldn't have ever given lodging to Gentiles. Yet that's what Peter does in these verses. We then learn in the subsequent verses that the next day, Peter accompanies these messengers from Cornelius back to Cornelius's house, a journey of about 30 miles or so, and arrives to find Cornelius, along with his relatives and close friends, assembled and ready to hear whatever Peter has to tell them. Peter then says to the group in verse 28, you yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter's beginning to grasp here how the gospel isn't just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. He then goes on to say in verses 34 and 35, truly I understand that, here's the main idea, right? God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him 
and does what is right is acceptable to him. Again, don't miss how radical this is. Peter entering the home of a Gentile would have been considered by most Jews to be a scandalous act. Jews and Gentiles just didn't mix, period. And part of that was, part of that separation was commanded in the Old Testament law, but a lot of it was actually just rules that the Jewish religious authorities of the day had taken upon themselves to add to the law. Now, God had commanded his people to be distinct from the nations and separate to some degree, but the Jews of that time period took that idea several steps further and refused to even associate with Gentiles at all. In fact, they despised Gentiles. In modern terms, they were racist, plain and simple. It's actually recorded how when a Jew had to travel to a Gentile nation for business and then returned home again, he would actually shake the dust off of his sandals so that he wouldn't contaminate the Holy Land with Gentile dust. Also, if a young Jewish man or woman was disobedient and married a Gentile, their family would have a funeral service in order to symbolize how their child had, for all practical purposes, died. I mean, that's what that communicated. Their, their child is now dead to them. And as we can see here in Acts 10, Jews wouldn't even enter Gentile homes or allow Gentiles to enter their homes. So all of that to say that what we see happening here in Acts 10 is radical indeed. As Peter's now beginning to understand, God has a heart for the nations. Again, as Peter says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That is to say, nobody's ineligible for salvation. Jesus came to save people from all over the world. He came for the nations. And by the way, this wasn't anything new. The Jews of Peter's day didn't understand it, but God had actually revealed his heart for the nations in many places throughout the Old Testament. For example, God says in Isaiah 42, 6, addressing the Messiah, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Here it is. A light for the nations. That was the Messiah's mission to be a light for the nations. And we find the, the same thing in many other places throughout the Old Testament. And even from the lips of Jesus himself. We see Jesus saying in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Jesus came to save people from all over the world. And the way he accomplished that mission was just as unexpected as the scope of the mission. Even though everyone expected the Messiah, to triumph over his adversaries in a very visible way, Jesus actually allowed himself to be crucified. 
Yet his crucifixion wasn't the defeat that many would assume, but actually was the ultimate victory. Because in his suffering and in his death, Jesus was suffering the punishment for our sins. He was acting as our substitute and enduring that punishment that that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. That's the way Jesus accomplished our rescue. And then three days after that, Jesus rose from the dead to demonstrate that God the Father had indeed accepted his sacrifice. Yet the rescue Jesus offers isn't automatic. The Bible teaches that in order to receive the rescue Jesus offers, we have to turn away from our sins and we have to put our trust in Jesus alone as our only hope of being right with God. That's a message we call the gospel. And that gospel message offers hope, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. As Peter, through the events of Acts 10, has now come to understand. Through the gospel, both Jews and Gentiles are saved into the one family of God. And that, guys, that that is the ultimate answer. Not just to the racial tensions between Jew and Gentile, but to all racial tensions among all groups and throughout all time. Listen, humans by their very nature are tribal. It's in our fallen sinful nature to normally ally ourselves with people who are like us and to view those who aren't like us with mistrust, prejudice, and even at times hatred. Yet through the gospel, God takes people who are in different tribes, different groups, and brings them together into the same spiritual family. To state it another way, not only does the gospel reconcile people to God, it also reconciles people to each other. Paul describes it in this way in Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Again, using the barrier that existed between Jew and Gentile as an example. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called, this is like a derogatory uh, name, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the Gentiles condition. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, 
so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So through his death on the cross, Jesus, it says, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, not just between people and God, but again, between people and other people. Verse 16 states that Jesus effectively killed the hostility. Did you catch the play on words there? Jesus died so that all divisions would die. He was killed so that all divisions would be killed. And again, the way that happens is that people from different groups are saved into the same spiritual family and are no longer enemies, as many in society might expect them to be, but rather brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's incredible. So just to state the obvious, we as Christians should be the very first ones to denounce all racial prejudice as evil. And not just racial prejudice, but all kinds of prejudice. As John MacArthur observes, we are quick to exclude from our group those who seem undesir- or we deem undesirable. Those who fail to flatter us, support our opinions, reinforce our prejudices, boost our pride, or feed our egos, or whose style of life is significantly different. MacArthur goes on to say, even the church is not immune to this tendency. Those of another culture, skin color, social status, educational group, or income level often find themselves unwelcome in the church. Such intolerant exclusivism grieves the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, MacArthur says. And since racial tension in particular seems to be an issue in our society, And since it's also clearly in view in our main passage of Acts 10, I'd like to use the final portion of our time together to explore the way in which the Bible offers to our society a vastly superior path toward racial reconciliation. Now, by the way, in doing this, uh, let me assure you that I have no interest whatsoever in being politically correct or gaining approval or applause from secular society. My goal really isn't to gain approval, but rather to give assurance. That is, I'm not trying to gain approval from secular society, but rather to give assurance to Christians that the beliefs we hold dear offer society real hope and the best hope for true racial Reconciliation. So let me give you four reasons why the Bible author offers a superior path toward racial reconciliation. And that is a path that's vastly superior specifically to secularism, which would be the predominant view of our society. So first, the Bible offers a foundation for racial reconciliation that secularism lacks. Secularism is rooted in evolutionary assumptions about the origin of human life. And as you know, evolution revolves around the idea of the survival of the fittest. 
So where did the idea come from then? That all people, that every individual has inherent value and dignity and worth. Where did the idea come from that those who have power should help those who don't? Didn't arise from secular assumptions, that's for sure. In fact, the evolutionary mechanism of the survival of the fittest would seem to argue against helping those who have less power and who are marginalized and oppressed. Instead, it would seem to imply that those who have power should avoid doing anything to help those without power so that the human species can continue to progress. As ugly as it is, that would be the logically consistent conclusion of secular assumptions. Yet, of course, secularists don't say that. Instead, they're adamant that those with power should indeed help those who don't. Yet, how in the world do they get that virtuous idea? How do they come to that conclusion? Well, the only place they can really get it from when you think about it is Christianity. So understand that secularists can't even pursue their own goals without using Christian capital and borrowing Christian ideas. Guys, it's the Bible that gives us the idea that every single person has equal value and dignity and worth. And not just because we say they do, but because they've been created in the image of God. As Genesis 1:27 states, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And that is the all-important foundation for the pursuit of justice in society and therefore for racial reconciliation. It's a foundation that secularism lacks. Secularists have to pursue justice and racial reconciliation in spite of secularism's deeper level assumptions. While Christians are able to pursue those virtuous goals as a result and an outgrowth of our biblical beliefs. And second, not only does the Bible give us a foundation for racial reconciliation that secularism lacks, it also gives us a method for racial reconciliation that secularism lacks. You see, true racial reconciliation requires that people be changed on the inside. You can force external coexistence, but you can't force true reconciliation. It requires a profound inward change. And that's exactly what Christianity offers. A change of heart that occurs at conversion that's more radical than most people have even imagined. Theologians refer to this change of heart as regeneration. The Bible describes it in John chapter 3 as being born again. The fact is that Jesus, it changes people's hearts. And he is the only one who can change hearts. 
Listen, legislation can't change people's hearts. Public shaming on Twitter and the media can't change people's hearts. Only Jesus can change people's hearts. He's the only one who can take a proud, hateful heart and change it into a humble, loving heart. The only real method that secularists seem to have is to try to beat their ideological opponents into submission. And that currently doesn't seem to be working very well. But Jesus can take even the most hateful person and put it in their hearts to love. Then third, the Bible gives us resources for racial reconciliation that secularism lacks. And I'm thinking of two resources in particular that I believe are essential for racial reconciliation. First, the idea of loving our enemies. That's a distinctly Christian idea. Jesus commands his disciples in Luke 6, 27 to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. And Jesus then models that love himself during his crucifixion. As he's hanging there on that cross, what does Jesus do? He actually prays for the very people who are crucifying him. He prays that God the Father would forgive them for what they're doing. The only way secularists seem to be able to approach their enemies is hating them. While Christians are taught to love our enemies. So that's one idea. And the other idea that serves as a critical resource for racial reconciliation is forgiveness for the sinner. Secularism may not think it's religious, but it actually does designate certain people as sinners of sorts. And then proceeds to crucify them without mercy. Usually, again, on Twitter. But Christians are able to extend forgiveness toward those who sin. Knowing that we ourselves are are one of them. (laughs) We're just giving to others the, the same forgiveness that God has shown toward us. And then fourth, the Bible offers us a certainty for racial reconciliation that secularism lacks. You know, I was thinking the other day, how miserable it must be for the secular social justice warrior to spend their entire life pursuing justice in society only to see progress at the end of their life that's superficial at best. How depressing to be on your deathbed Departing from a world that's just as broken as the world you were born into. Yet the Bible gives us a hope for racial reconciliation that won't be disappointed. 
Revelation 7, 9 and 10 teaches us about, quote, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. That is Jesus clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. What a beautiful picture of the perfect racial harmony that God will one day bring about. And actually, we can see that starting to take shape already. According to data from the Pew Research Center, Christianity is by far the most geographically diverse religion in the world. Only about 12% of professing Christians live in North America. 26%, again, of professing Christians live in Europe. 24% live in Latin America or the Caribbean. 24% live in Sub-Saharan Africa. And 13% live in Asia or the Pacific. So as you can see here by the, the fact that this bar is way more spread out than any of the other bars, Christianity is by far the most diverse religion or worldview in existence today. A lot more diverse than the unaffiliated or uh, secular um, uh, religious perspective. And so not only does Christianity have the confident expectation of worldwide racial harmony in the future, but Christianity has already achieved, within itself at least, greater racial diversity in the present than any other religion or worldview. All that to say that the Bible offers us a certainty of racial reconciliation that secularism lacks. So as Christians, I really believe that we're in a unique position to offer our society a path toward racial reconciliation that's vastly superior to anything secularism has to offer. And again, our motive for doing so isn't to gain approval or win applause or virtue signal or anything like that, but rather to glorify God by being salt and light in this world. As Matthew chapter five says, a city on a hill that can't be hidden.